0: Well, if you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 124. Psalm 124. You can find the book of Psalms if you put your fingers in between the middle of your Bible and open it. You should land there. Uh, this morning we're going to be continuing in our series through the Psalms of Ascent. Or the Psalms of Ascents, actually. Um, and this morning we're going to be specifically looking at Psalm 124. And Psalm 125. God will never give you more than you can handle. Anyone ever heard that before? Anyone, maybe anyone ever used that phrase? Well, my guess is that you probably have. Maybe you've said it to yourself. Maybe you've said it to somebody who was struggling with something. Now, I think the spirit behind that statement is very good. It acknowledges that God is in control, that he is sovereign, that he is king. And it rightly indicates that he is watching over us, that he knows us, that he has regard for our weakness. These are precious biblical realities. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The thing is, life is full of overwhelming circumstances. Tragedies happen. We go through things that bring us to our wits' end. Loved ones die unexpectedly. Hopes and dreams get dashed. Work becomes an overwhelming burden. Fear of the unknown becomes so oppressive that we can hardly breathe. And it's in moments like that when statements like, God will never give you more than you can handle, just feels trite. And they lose efficacy because when we hear something like that, oftentimes we conclude things like, well, since God will never give me more than I can handle, then I've just got to endure. I've just got to overcome. I can beat this if I just pull myself up by my own bootstraps. The reality is that God often pushes us to the brink of ourselves so that we may learn to depend wholly on Him. So it is more accurate to say, as one pastor has put it, that God will never give his people trials in which he will not sustain them and bring them through to everlasting glory. God's steadfast deliverance is a reason to give him praise. Praise is an ascription of worth to God's name that flows from a heart that has been affected by the awesome reality of who he is and of what he has done. As we saw last week, God gives his people a durable joy. A joy that is able to weather every circumstance. He is with his people to sustain them and to keep them through every trial. So the right response to those realities of God's saving power is thankfulness and praise. Now, when we were in the book of Galatians, we learned about the conflict that exists between our fallen nature, and which is what Paul refers to as the flesh, and the Holy Spirit, who is at work in believers to shape them and to mold them into the likeness of Christ. So there's a fight going on in each and every one of us. Each day we wage war against all desires which are opposed to God and to his will for us. We battle with a, with a sense of pride and a sense of entitlement that God owes us, that he ought and must love us, that he must give us his blessings. Uh, this is a necessary battle because entitlement is a joy killer. Entitlement is a joy killer. It smothers joy like a wet blanket. Thankfulness, on the other hand, fuels joy. A thankful heart fans joy's flame alive so that it endures in every circumstance. So in our fight against the flesh, in a world where tragedy and hardship and overwhelming circumstances are a reality, we must strive by the Holy Spirit to develop a heart of praise and of thankfulness so that our joy may be made full. And Psalm 124 And Psalm 125 instruct us in how to do this. So our goal this morning is to learn how to develop a heart of praise and thanksgiving. How to pursue praise and thanksgiving and the joy of Christ. So let's begin by reading our text. Uh, If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from Psalm 124 and 125, both in their entirety. This is the Word of the Lord a song of ascent of David. If it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters blessed be the lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth we have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers the snare is broken we have escaped our help is in the name of the lord who made heaven and earth a song of ascent. those who trust in the lord are like mount zion which cannot be moved but abides forever As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But to those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. God beckons each and every one of us to come into his presence with joy and gladness psalm 55 says oh come let us sing to the Lord let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation let us come into his presence with thanksgiving let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods in his hand are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are his also God's praise is not abstract thankfulness is a result of the goodness of the reality of who he is and of the goodness and the reality of what he has done the key to developing a heart of praise is to come into contact with the glory with the power with the holiness of god when the, glory of God, when the glory of who God is and the power of His work ceases to be just simply a term or a doctrine in a book to you and when it becomes a reality that we actually experience, our hearts have no choice but to burst with praise and thanksgiving to Him. Psalm 125 and Psalm, 1, Psalm 124 and Psalm 125 put that into action. These are the kind of songs that make the heart soar, that exhilarate the soul. They fill God's saints with praise and thanksgiving and consequently with joy because they bring us into contact with God's awesome character and they make us meditate on his mighty work on our behalf. So the goal this morning, the goal, my goal this morning, is to see your hearts filled with joy and thanksgiving and praise to God as you consider the ways that God has worked on your behalf and the reality of who He is. And that brings us to consider our main idea this morning, the main idea that runs through both of these psalms. Find joy in God by developing a heart of thankfulness and praise to Him. Find joy in God by developing a heart of thankfulness and praise to Him. What I want to do this morning is to give you three ways that we are to go about developing this heart of praise three ways. So, first, each one of these is a little bit of a mouthful, so I'll reduce these down for you in a second, but this is what they are. First of all, know that God is the exclusive deliverer of his people. Know that God is the exclusive deliverer of his people. Second, rely on God's steadfast love. Rely on God's steadfast love. Finally, and thirdly, trust in the promise of our eternal inheritance. Learn to trust in the promise of a, our eternal inheritance. We want to begin this morning by looking at God, who is the exclusive deliverer. Now, Titus, our son, is entering a stage where he wants to do everything himself. It's I do, I do, all the time. So whether it's washing hands, opening the fridge, climbing up in his car seat, it is always no Titus do. He's becoming more and more capable and independent and. F- With a baby, with a new baby, I am grateful that he is motivated to do some of those things for himself. But this newfound self-reliance can create some problems. You see, he's not always aware of the ways he is dependent on a watchful eye, looking over him, making sure he's not putting himself in a dangerous situation. He's able to succeed in some of the things that he wants to do because we're there. Otherwise, it would be a situation that would be completely overwhelming to him. Now, when you read Psalm 124, you get the idea that David, who wrote this psalm, has just been through the ringer. Actually, you get the idea that the whole nation of Israel has been through some overwhelming situation, something that they could not handle on their own. What he describes here is a nation that is under attack by a motivated enemy. In the second part of verse 2, he says that people had risen up against them, that they were about to be swallowed up alive, uh, that when the anger of these aggressors was kindled, then the flood of their rage threatened to sweep them away, that the torrent of their violence was about to go over them like raging waters that burst out of a broken dam. Now, if you've read about David's life, you know that he had plenty of brushes with death during his lifetime. It's hard to say whether he's referring to a specific situation here in his own life or whether he's meditating on the many times when overwhelming circumstances threatened to wipe out God's people. Whether it was the Egyptian troops closing in on the nation of Israel at the Red Sea or whether it was the swollen Jordan River that the people crossed as they were making their way into the promised land with Joshua or whether it was the many times that foreign invasions from people like the Philistines had come upon Israel, or whether it's the Assyrian invasion during the days of King Hezekiah, or the rise and the fall of empires to come, God's people have always been threatened by overwhelming circumstances. Whatever situation David has in mind here, it's clear that this is not the sort of of scenario that he or anyone else in the nation had the power to face on their own. This is a situation where God's people had been pushed to a point that was beyond their own abilities. They had been given more than they could handle. They were in danger of being completely overwhelmed, wiped out, caught in the path of a flood of hatred, and of violence and of anger, with no way to get out. Now, maybe as you read these words, you can relate to what David is referring to here. Maybe you have been in a place where you were so low, where you had exhausted every resource you had, and nothing was working, and you were about to despair. Maybe you, uh, maybe you struggle with depression. And on a regular basis you feel like the world is just pressing in on you that you have nowhere to go and that you are one breath from total despair. Maybe you have been in a life and death situation like David is describing to you, uh, describing here where you thought to yourself this this is it. This is how it ends. And something to be brought low like that, isn't it? To hit rock bottom, to feel the reality of weakness and ineptitude. It's in the midst of those situations that uh, we need more than statements like "God will never give you more than you can handle." It's in those moments when we realize how truly dependent we are on the kindness and the watchfulness of our Creator. It's in those moments when we need to know that we need to know that the God who made heaven and earth is the God who helps us and who delights in being our exclusive deliverer. Notice in the, first, in, in the opening uh, two verses of this psalm how David focuses not on the overwhelming odds that Israel had faced nor on the fury of their enemies but on the power of God to save his people from what they couldn't handle themselves. He opens this psalm from the very beginning. You don't even know he's in trouble. If it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, if it had been anyone else, Then when people rose up against us, they would have swallowed us up alive, like that great fish that swallowed Jonah. If it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, we would have been swept away as if caught in Noah's flood. It was the Lord who prevented an overwhelming situation and an overwhelming adversary from consuming his people. No one else had power to save them. The reason they were not consumed, the reason they were not swept away, the reason they were not destroyed by the rage of this motivated enemy, David says, is because the Lord was on their side. There is something about having a close brush with death that gives a person clarity of vision and focus on what really matters. Uh, when you make a bad turn on your driving on the road and someone screams past you honking their horn and you jerk away just in time, you drive differently for at least the next 30 minutes, don't you? As David pondered about how God had prevented Israel from being consumed by these enemy nations, he recognized that the glory was God's exclusively. No one else can take credit here. No warrior, no mighty man of Israel could boast. The glory of this victory was God's alone. And that called David to boast, not in himself, not in the armies of Israel, but in the Lord of hosts who had delivered them. Look at how he responds to this in verses 6 and 7. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken. And we have escaped. When David considered how God had worked to save his people, his heart was filled with awe. It was filled with praise and joy and thanksgiving. This is the natural response of the heart that has come face to face with the power and the glory of God. He is worthy of our worship and our praise. Uh, This psalm isn't like the other songs of ascent that we have read so far, which are an appeal to God to do this. It's written by someone who has experienced that salvation for themselves. And as such, David's heart could not help but burst forth with worship because he had seen firsthand how God had shown regard for his name and for his people which he had set apart to be his own. If David rejoiced like this when God delivered Israel from their enemies, how much more should our hearts be filled with praise and thanksgiving to God who has delivered us from our greatest enemy, sin and death. In regards to boasting, the gospel does two things. First of all, it empties us of boasting in ourselves because it exposes our inability to save ourselves through our own efforts. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. The second thing the gospel does is that it fills us with praise to God, boasting in the victory of the cross of Christ through which God has saved us in the hope of the eternal life which he has secured for us. 1 Corinthians 15 says that when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Suffice it to say, brothers and sisters, that if Christ were not on our side, we too would have been swallowed up by death. We would have reason to fear the grave we too would be consumed by the flame of God's righteous anger. We too would be kept in bondage to sin, unable and unwilling to seek peace with God. But God has done what we could not in the weakness of our flesh. He has conquered sin, He has conquered death, and He has put them both to death in the work of Christ on the cross. If we would have hearts that are filled with thankfulness and praise to God the way they should be, then let us follow David's example and begin by seeing, knowing, and rejoicing in the God who exclusively delivers us through his grace as an overwhelming, uh, from the overwhelming condition of our sin. The second way we develop a heart of praise is by learning to rely on the steadfast love of the Lord. Life has its ups and downs, doesn't it? As seasons change, so do the circumstances of our lives. The strength to live in a temporary world that is always changing comes from delighting our hearts in the God who does not change. James says that in God there is no shadow, there is no variation in him due to change. What that means is that God retains his excellences in every circumstance. A tree will flourish no matter the weather as long as it is planted in good ground and so will the heart that is anchored in the steadfast love of God. If we are to pursue joy by developing a heart of praise and thanks to God, then we must anchor ourselves in the steadfast love and in the promise that He gives His people to keep us. Now, Psalm 125 is not credited to David, but as we read it, we can see how the theme of this song goes hand in hand with what he had written. Psalm 125 says, begins by saying those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion which cannot be moved but abides forever as the mountains surround Jerusalem so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore now there's nothing in this psalm that speaks of the love of God directly but the way that the psalmist speaks about God's love for his people really cannot be uh, be described in any other way now, similar to what we've already seen in Psalm 124, the psalmist sings here of the way that God keeps and guards his people in the midst of every calamity. He begins by identifying who God's people are. He says that God's people are those who trust in him. Now, this is an important distinction. God's people are distinguished by a unique relationship that they have with him. They trust him. That's how you can identify God's people it's a matter of faith. Now having just gone to the book of Galatians together, our ears should light up when we hear the psalmist talking this way. It's not those who live in a particular place or come from a particular, from a particular people who are movable. It's those who trust in the Lord. Those who trust in the Lord, we are, we are informed by Paul, are the true children of, of Abraham, the inheritors of his blessing. In verse 2, the psalmist goes further. He calls those who trust in the Lord God's people. There's a connection between God and those who trust Him. They are defined by this relationship. They are His people, and because they are His people, He keeps them. In the second part of verse 2, the psalmist says that the Lord surrounds them, that they are established by Him, that they are kept by Him, so that they cannot be moved. They are so secure, the only imagery he can come up with is the mountains. They are fixed and immovable. And it's it's no accident here that the psalmist compares God's people to Mount Zion and the mountains that surrounded Jerusalem. Mount Zion and Jerusalem were the place, if you recall from last week, where God had chosen to make his presence dwell in a special way. God's people have a relationship with him. His presence is with them. He regards them with steadfast love. He surrounds them. He provides for them. He protects them. In both of these two verses, the psalmist really plays up the idea that this is an enduring relationship. It says, As Mount Zion abides forever, so do those who trust in the Lord. He surrounds them with his presence forever and forever. Now, it doesn't get better than this. It doesn't get better than this. We give thanks and praise to God for the way that he provides for our every need. But the psalmist here is saying that God has given us something far greater than anything on earth. He has given us himself. Those who trust in the Lord are kept safe and secure by his presence. He delivers his people from the plots of the wicked and fills their hearts and their lips with praise for him. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. Psalm 140, verse 13. The presence of God has never been felt. It has never been experienced in the same way like it has been experienced in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. As the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. In him was life, John says, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It is secure. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, who trusted in him, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of god you see how what john says about jesus reflects what the psalmist says in psalm 125 the words of psalm 125 have become a reality in the person and the work of jesus he has broken down the dividing wall that existed between god and man because of sin through his work on the cross through faith in him and only in him we have been made sons and daughters of god By believing in Him, we become one with Him. His death becomes our death. His life becomes our life. And now there is no veil that separates God from His people. There is only life and love in the salvation He has purchased for us. So we develop a heart of praise by the work of the Spirit in us when we put our hope in the love that God has shown us when He sent His only begotten Son into the world to rescue us Giving us the promise that all who trust in the name of the Lord shall be saved. The love of Jesus never dulls, it never wanes, it does not ebb, it only flows from a never ending fountain as we rejoice in Him. Now, the third way that we develop a heart of praise is by trusting in the promise of our eternal inheritance in King Jesus. We develop a heart of praise by trusting in the eternal inheritance Christ has secured for us. In verses 3 through 5, the psalmist switches over to compare the inheritance of the righteous with the inheritance of the wicked. What's interesting is that as he does this, he frames this in, ter- in kingdom terms. Look at verse 3. For the scepter of, the, of, of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hand to do wrong. Isn't that interesting? The psalmist is saying that God will not permit the scepter, which is a symbol of kingdom power and kingdom rule, the scepter of wickedness, to rest on the land which has been given to the righteous. And the reason he gives for why God will not permit this is, lest the righteous stretch out their hand to do wrong. So God is actively at work here protecting the righteous, ruling over them himself, expelling the rule of wickedness from the land that has been reserved for them in order to preserve them from acting wickedly themselves. A righteous ruler establishes the joy of his people, whereas the scepter of the wicked brings pain. Consider Proverbs 29, verse 2. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. Now, as we look at this psalm and we think about the history of Israel, we have to admit that Israel definitely had more than its fair share of wicked rulers. The majority of the kings, which are talked about in the Bible, whether we're talking about the northern kingdom of Israel or the southern kingdom of Judah, were not godly men. The people had plenty of opportunity to groan under the scepter of wicked men. Uh, Verse 3, then, I find, leaves us hungry for a better king, for a king whose scepter always rules in righteousness, whose rule keeps the hand of the righteous from doing wrong. Uh, frankly, verse 3 leaves us hungry for King Jesus, who is called the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the one who has conquered, who is worthy of praise and of honor because he was slain like a lamb for the sins of his people, who by his own blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, making them a kingdom and priest to God. You know, without Jesus and his redemptive work, Psalm 125 would be the worst news ever. It would be the worst news ever because while a psalmist talks about how God is eager to preserve the righteous, in verse 5 he says, but those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with the evildoers. Now, under the Mosaic Covenant, one of the curses God pronounces on those who break his law was to be expelled out of the land of blessing. When the psalmist talks about evildoers being led away, he's talking about exile. He's talking about the way that Adam and Eve were expelled from paradise when they transgressed God's rule. He's talking about the way that Israel was expelled out of the promised land because they would not repent. He's talking about the way that one day Jesus will look at those who do not believe, who have not trusted on him, and say, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. It is terrifying to read this psalm with the pronouncement of the law that no one is righteous, no, not one. For no one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. If, if that was the end of the story, then there would be no reason for Psalm 125 to fill our hearts with joy and praise. They could only fill our hearts with despair because we all stand convicted before God as sinners. But the good news is that that's not the end of the story. Because God has done what we could not. He has made a way to secure righteousness for all who believe, who trust in the salvation which has been secured by Christ the King. We read this now, we read this in Romans three twenty-one, that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or as a payment by His blood to be received by faith. The reason this psalm leaves us hungry for a righteous king is because it was written, looking forward to the day when God would secure His people through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ setting up his kingdom, a kingdom which will never be moved, which is being expanded even today to every corner of the globe. How does this fill our hearts with praise and thanksgiving? Because it teaches us to hope in a greater city, in a heavenly kingdom, New Jerusalem, where Christ is making all things new. The gospel is not good news is it, if it's for this life only, because it's costly, but it's worth it because the inheritance that Jesus has secured for us is a treasure that robbers cannot break in and steal, and where neither moth and rust can destroy. This world has plenty of treasures in it, but none of them last, none of them finally satisfy. Jesus calls us to trade the meager hope we have in those temporary pleasures for the pleasures that he offers in his presence, where there is fullness of joy. Christ has secured something better for us, much better for us. And that should fill every believer's heart with joy and praise and thanks to God. Developing a heart of praise that is pleasing in God's sight comes simply as a result of pressing into the realities of who he is and what he has done. This morning we have considered three realities of God which are meant to fuel our joy, which are meant to produce praise and thanksgiving in our hearts. These are things to be put into practice. He is the exclusive deliverer of his people. He regards his people with steadfast love, a love that will never waver And he regards and he has secured for us an eternal inheritance of riches for his people through the work of his beloved son, an inheritance of eternal life. If those aren't reasons to rejoice and praise God, then you've got your priorities wrong. Heaven exalts in the crucified king, and so do we as his people. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Our great God and king, You rule heaven and earth, for you have created them, you sustain them, you work all things together for your perfect will. There is none who can stay your hand. There is no king, ruler, president, governor, mayor, who can stay your hand or or hold you to account and say, what have you done? For you are God. But more than that, you are good. Father, we barely have a category for understanding the excellence of your, good, of your goodness. And yet we have seen the measure of your love and of your glory in the cross of Christ. And I ask, Father, that you would give us the strength to make these, to take, to, to place these lessons into practice, so to fill our hearts with praise and that as you fill our hearts with praise and thanksgiving, that you would also fill them with joy, knowing that, you have, that we do not deserve your grace, but have been given it out of the benevolence of your love. And I pray, Father, that you would give us the strength to be able to, to walk in a manner that is pleasing to you, to wage war against the flesh by the power of your Spirit, so that we would arrive in your kingdom weary, but satisfied in the glory of Christ.